four years after the merger between the NBA and the ABA, we got a glimpse of everything that professional basketball would soon become. From the Forum in Los Angeles, it's the NBA World Championship Series on CBS, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Good afternoon. It was May 1980, the epic matchup of the Philadelphia 76ers and the Los Angeles Lakers in the finals. On one side, Julius Irving, the transported megastar from the former ABA. Watch this fantastic move by the On the other side for the Lakers, Irving Magic Johnson, the rookie from Michigan State whose run-and-gun style and million-dollar smile was tailor-made for television. All eyes were on Magic, playing the point like a conductor, and Dr. J executing iconic moves like the legendary baseline scoop that became one of the NBA's first mega highlights. Magic Johnson was awarded the NBA title and finals MVP, the first of each for the kid from Michigan State. How many more of these would you like to get under your belt? About 20. <laughs> well, no. the best of luck to you. You're absolutely no. fantastic. Thank Let's you. go back to Brett Musburger. That was the leading story on the sports pages. But if you flip to the very front of the paper, you would have seen another giant star with a smile built for TV who was poised to seize his moment. We must do it now. Not with bigger government. It takes better government. That's what we owe ourselves and our children. Four days after the NBA Finals ended, Ronald Reagan clinched enough delegates to secure the 1980 GOP nomination for president. Ronald Reagan for president. Let's make America great again. You could almost tell the whole story of the 80s just through Magic Johnson and Ronald Reagan. But just a week after Magic Johnson would cradle the NBA trophy and Ronald Reagan would accept the presidential nomination, there was another star whose final chapter was quietly and tragically coming to a close. A sharpshooting wing named Terry Furlow with a bombastic personality, a trash talker on the court, one of the most tenacious defenders and shooters that Flint, Michigan would ever produce. His story would be forgotten. But if you want to understand how the 80s became the decade in which we obsessed over personal success, materialism, consumption, and left individuals on their own to deal with the consequences, Terry Furlow's story is a good place to start. I'm Adam McKay from Hyper Object Industries and 3 Uncanny 4. This is Death at the Wing. Tonight's episode, Terry Furlow the original Flintstone, the NBA's reckoning with drugs, and a car crash forgotten by basketball. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. 
Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I was still a young guy uh, just coming into high school, and he used to say, come on, meet me up at uh, what we used to call the old men's gym. That was Magic Johnson reminiscing about Terry Furlow, one of the all-time greats from his alma mater, Michigan State. And he would beat me like 15 nothing, and he beat me bad 15 nothing. And he, he, you know, I got my head down. He said, pick your head up. I'm supposed to beat you 15 nothing. And I'm gonna keep beating you until you finally respond. Terry was the trash-talking superstar of the Spartans in the mid-70s, a few years older than Magic. Eric Woodyard from ESPN is a fellow Flintstone like Terry. That's what they call people from Flint, Michigan. Flintstones. If you actually read Magic Johnson's autobiography, he has a whole section in there where he talks about Terry Furlow and uh, the impact that he had on him. And he used to beat him one-on-one every day. When Terry was coming up, Flint was, in many ways, a model for how industry and government used to work hand-in-hand to build a real middle class. It looks like an ordinary day in the USA, but in the city of Flint, Michigan, all is excitement. In the late 70s, 80,000 people from Flint worked for General Motors, almost half of the town's population. The Auto Workers Union fought for stable jobs and good wages, and they were successful. In 1980, Flint had a higher median income for young workers than San Francisco. The whole town's a bustle. There's going to be a parade, too. So you can imagine it was huge when a local kid would end up down the street at Michigan State playing ball. Magic Johnson would write in his autobiography, My Life, Terry was a genuine sports hero at the university, the kind of guy people wanted to be around. He always came in style dressed in a fancy suit with a girl on each arm. Terry would later take a young Magic Johnson to college parties, walk in the doors and say, man, I can't see in here. The fur low is in the house, so turn up the lights. By the way, that's how I enter rooms too, and it does not go as well. Terry was a character, but here's the thing. He backed it up on the court. He, he really put up numbers and uh, he still has a lot of records. He averaged almost 30 points a game in senior year, so he was a scorer. He was, he was a heck of a talent. He once dropped 50 in a game, an absurd total in the era without a three-point line and no shot clock in college ball. One writer would say he had a perfect jump shot. He could shoot the basketball, but he was a competitor uh, to every, every inch of that word. Benny White, one of Terry's teammates, was his best friend coming up through college. You try to let you know he wasn't going nowhere while he was sticking that jump shot on you. I mean, he, he was uh, he's like a, a lightweight Muhammad Ali. He talked it, but he backed it. Terry was the kind of person that was never afraid to speak his mind. And that meant clashes with others. Here's sports columnist Mike Sielski. He's actually suspended for a game against Indiana. Uh, because he and several players on the Michigan State team believe that a white player is starting ahead of several more deserving black teammates. Benny White remembers that moment well. I was on the team when we did uh, walk out. We demonstrated that against uh, Indiana. For the previous decade, the NCAA had banned dunking. The game was changing, and the old guard, the old white guard, was doing what it could to preserve the game's traditions. It was more of uh, just a different 
racist type of things that we were experiencing as a team and chose to as the black players to stand up and uh and speak up on it so he's you know socially conscious and really sharp and smart the flip side of that is you know he's got this kind of explosive personality he punches out a trainer uh, at Michigan State he punches out a teammate but Terry's talent was undeniable and sure enough he was named third team all-american heading into the draft one of the best players in college ball his shooting from the wing would thrive in the new era of basketball, the faster game the NBA was driving towards. Terry would be selected 12th overall in the first round by the Philadelphia 76ers. All the hard work had paid off. The long days on the courts in Flint, Michigan, fighting for playing time at Michigan State, sometimes fighting with other players as well. This was the moment Terry had worked his entire life for. Magic Johnson would later write in his book, as soon as Terry turned pro, he bought himself a blue Mercedes. He used to drive it back to Michigan, where his mother lived. The first time I saw that car, Magic wrote, I loved it. I promised myself if I ever made it to the NBA, that was the car I would drive to. It was the lifestyle Terry expected to have when he made it to the big leagues. The All-American, the top dog, the fur low, turned the lights up. But there was one big problem. Another electric wing player happened to be on his way to Philly as well. See, the same offseason that Terry got drafted was the one in which the ABA merged with the NBA and one Julius Winfield Irving II, a.k.a. Dr. J, was headed to the Sixers. Dr. J was clearly future. Going into this season, though, none of this mattered to Terry. He was a walking bucket, as we would say today, and he still carried himself like the star he'd been in high school and college. But you know where this is headed. Terry didn't get to live his blue Mercedes lifestyle. It couldn't have been worse for furlough if you think about it. Even though he's the number 12 overall pick, um, he's at the end of the bench the entire season. Furlow would only see the floor for 174 minutes that season, the lowest on the entire team. He tells the news journal, I'm the best shooter on the team. I've proven that. The idea that Furlow would look at himself in that way kind of gives you an insight into to his thinking at that time of his life. Furlow's time with the Sixers wouldn't last long. He was quickly traded to Cleveland, then Atlanta. This all started his brief career bouncing around from team to team. This also happened to be precisely at the same moment that a brand new party culture was hitting America and descending on the stars and wannabe stars of the NBA. That's coming up after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Studio 54 is probably the Mount Olympus of the disco world. People behind me are waiting to get in. Some will wait nearly all night. You see, it's worth it to them. In 1979, the infamously exclusive guest list at Studio 54, the crown jewel of New York's nightlife, had four categories. Pay. That one's simple. You pay or you don't get in. NG, for the no-good creeps who only cause problems. Comp for the folks who get in for free. And NFU were the no fuck-ups, VIPs whose asses must be kissed at all costs at all time. The NFU list was no joke. Was names like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Andy Warhol. Margaret Trudeau boogies here, as does Jane Fonda, assorted Arabian potentates, just about everybody who makes the Sunday section of the New York Times, the Tonight Show, or the National Observer. And for the first time, NBA players were finally famous enough to make some waves of their own. Players like Walt Clyde the Glide Frazier, Wilt Chamberlain, Skywalker David Thompson were big enough to get the star treatment at Studio 54. They didn't just rub elbows on the dance floor or whatever else in the stain-resistant rubber room upstairs. They stood out. Even George Mikan showed up at Studio 54, removing his Harry Potter glasses. He was famous for wandering around the club asking if anyone had a line, shirtless with one of his nipples pierced. Okay, I'm making that up completely. All respect to the Mikan family, that is a total joke. My point is though, for the first time, the NBA, the dawn of the 80s, didn't just have stars, they had superstars. But. Terry Furlow wasn't in Studio 54. Terry was miles away, coming off the bench in Atlanta. He's, he's living in Atlanta. Um, you know, he's got an apartment there. Terry was still as confident as ever, and he spent the whole summer telling anyone who would listen that he was about to become a star. And he befriends the other uh, shooting guard on the team, a guy named Eddie Johnson. And this is probably the worst decision he could make. Johnson is one of the more infamous figures in NBA history. He plays 10 years in the league. He's an incredibly talented player, makes the all-star team twice. But the NBA ends up suspending him several times for cocaine use. During the 1980 offseason alone, Johnson had two gunmen chase him out of a second-story window, got arrested for possession in a rental car, checked into a psychiatric facility, only to get arrested again for stealing a car the day after he checked out. If you were looking to make your mark in the NBA, Fast Eddie Johnson was the type of guy you needed to avoid. He was a troubled, troubled young man. 
but he could also be the life of the party. And it was a party that Terry Furlow was enjoying a lot. And the more he hangs out with Eddie Johnson, the more erratic Furlow's behavior becomes. Um, he shows up late for the team picture. Um, after a game in Detroit, he just leaves the team. He tells a teammate, take my bags to the airport. I'm going somewhere else. But nobody really knows where he is. He's got this house on the south side of Atlanta that he never decorates. It's got no furniture. It's totally full of house guests. Disappearing from your team sounds like a cry for help in today's NBA. But in 1979, with the way people were partying, who could blame him? It was more accessible drugs and, you know, sex, drugs, you know, money. You know, that was just a time where, you know, young guys, especially for him being 25, guys were experimenting at that time. So for him, you know, not making an excuse or anything, but it was kind of normal at that time. By the time Terry was in Atlanta with the Hawks, cocaine, sex, and disco had spread from New York City to all around the country. People just thought they were like recreational drugs, kind of fun, kind of like, it, you know, by the end of the evening, you're dancing all night, doing a little cocaine, you could go another couple of hours. This is Kate Hardman, who I'm declaring my own personal 80s drug expert. Sorry, Kate, you're my drug expert. Kate's worked in Hollywood for decades as a script supervisor, an editor. She's seen it all. It'd just be on the dining room table and people could just go in there and do it. And then, you know, you just party all night, drink and do cocaine all night till like four or five in the morning. Something like Coke, you know to be scared of it now. You've seen what it's done to people. It's a serious drug. But back then, the party was just getting started. We would be in our 18th hour and the producer would just come into the camera truck and throw a bag of cocaine down on down on the table in the uh, dark room and go, we're going to have a long night. And he would do that in every truck, the grip truck, the uh, electric truck. Everybody got like a little bag of cocaine. And then we would wow. work like one time, 32 hours, 32 hours, Adam. Can you even imagine? Basketball was still only learning how to be young, rich, and famous at the turn of the decade. And when you're the first generation of wealth and fame in your family, hell, in your community, how do you even comprehend the idea of a downside? When I think of that era, I think about uh, De Palma's film, Scarface, which would become huge in hip hop. Todd Boyd, professor at USC. But personally, I mean, I remember some friends of mine in the dorm had um, the VHS of Scarface. What I try to tell you, this country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. That's why you gotta make your own moves. You captivated me. I remember, you know, those scenes that everybody mocks now, Tony Montana sitting at the desk and there's this like, you know, mountain of cocaine that he drops his face in. It was interesting in the 70s and early 80s to think about cocaine as a drug of the elite, as a drug of the celebrity class. I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great to make enough money to be able to afford that much cocaine so that you could demonstrate how much money you had made? Who needs a nine to five job in a house in Flint? This was the new American dream making enough money to be able to purchase that amount. That now, you know, makes me sound like, you know, a dope fiend. 
But back in the 80s, when I was in college, cocaine was something that people aspired to because of what it represented. Showing off wealth became the name of the game for a new American decade. So it it was a little weird that the embodiment of American triumph at that moment was a wholesome, avuncular, former General Electric pitchman. My fellow citizens of this great nation, with a deep awareness of the responsibility conferred by your trust, I accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. And even though Reagan wouldn't have been caught dead at a Coke-fueled dance party, his generation preferred alcohol-fueled dance parties, this man that was running for president still embraced the new culture of greed and conspicuous consumption. And he and his party would use it as a cover to start to remake the entire country. Tax policies, its harassing regulation, its confiscation of investment capital to pay for its deficits keeps business and industry from expanding to meet your needs and to provide the jobs we all need. This was a radical shift in the way that Americans thought about and talked about wealth. In the 60s and 70s, showing off your wealth was considered rude or gross. You know, the houses were smaller. People were just plain not trying to show off. That's Jane Mayer, writer for The New Yorker. And and that whole culture changed in the 80s. It became okay to show off. And so what happens? You begin to see gigantic fortunes being made on Wall Street and a kind of, uh, I guess there was, a, you know, a great amount of worship of the super wealthy during that period. I mean, it, they became sort of the folk heroes, the big Wall Street movers and shakers. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Films like Scarface would glorify the materialism and conspicuous consumption of the 80s. And even when movies came along like Wall Street that tried to criticize the 80s, they were misinterpreted as supporting greed and wealth. Greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar Paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Fun little fact, Lakers head coach Pat Riley's slick back hair and Armani suits inspired the look of Gordon Gecko. Anyway. So what you see with Reagan is, is the business world essentially taking back power. It's, it's the wealthy saying, we want to rule again. And the message to anyone who couldn't make it in the new America was, that's on you. Americans were told, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But what people said was... We don't even have boots, let alone straps. Maybe wealth wouldn't actually trickle down in Reagan's America, but the images of it certainly did. A culture of materialism was on the rise. You know, money and status and prestige are newly available to people in ways that it hadn't been 10 years earlier. I'm from Detroit, and maybe the most visible component of that was the car you drove because it became a status symbol in black communities. It became sort of shorthand as a way to say, in spite of all this racism surrounding me, I have succeeded and this is my representation of success, my car. And it would be the car, a brand new blue Mercedes, the symbol of having made it in America, that would in the end lead to Terry Furlow's downfall. That's after the break.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. In the spring of 1980, Terry Furlow was still trying to find his way in the league. He was partying hard off the court. But for the first time, he started to have some real success on the court. Yes, he was, he was starting to run in the form and you know, the 79-80 season, he got up to 16 a game. Terry had finally found playing time and was getting to show what he could do. He was on his way to being the elite scorer he knew he was, and he was sure, eventually, an NBA All-Star. And he gets traded to, you know, a place that's probably diametrically opposed to Atlanta as you could be in the NBA, which is Utah. He gets a two-room suite at a travel lodge in Salt Lake City. That's his new house. You know, he tells a writer, you know, I can see my future here. See, the NBA had finally introduced a three-point line a godsend to a shooter like Terry Furlow. But it wasn't like he could flip a switch and just suddenly stop partying. So at the start of the offseason, Terry had headed back to the Midwest. And on the night of May 23rd, he got in his Benz to drive to an old teammate's party outside of Cleveland. So Terry Furlow is driving on I-71 and he's driving through Lindale. Meanwhile, some 400 miles away, the old Spectrum in Philadelphia, Dr. J and Magic were captivating the sports world in the, the finals. NBA world Championship Series on CBS, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Good afternoon, everybody. In his car, he has a copy of the Jazz's playbook. He has several Jazz warm-up shirts. It's hard to know what Terry was thinking. Did he have his radio on? Was he hearing highlights of Magic Johnson taking over the basketball world. And you're here. How many more of these would you like to get under your belt? About 20. <laughs> well, the best of luck to you. You're absolutely I mean, remember, Terry used to whoop his ass in practice. He could do it again if he had the chance. There are three open cans of beer and a marijuana cigarette. On the pockets of his pants, he has um, cocaine powder, cocaine dust, and he's already taken cocaine and Valium. They're in his bloodstream. And as he goes through Lindale, he comes up upon a tractor trailer in front of him. And he's driving his Mercedes and to get around to try to pass apparently the tractor trailer. Terry was in his dream car, using the drug that only the rich could afford. And he was doing what every commercial and authority figure was telling you to do in 1980, living the life. He veers off to the right, and the car drives directly into a steel utility pole. The Mercedes hits the utility pole on the driver's side, and it hits it with such impact that the front wheel of the car gets sheared off, and, and the grill of the car is thrown 500 feet down the highway. Um, it took two different police crews uh, to cut Furlow's body out of the car. Uh, he's dead on impact. Less than two weeks after hoisting the finals MVP trophy, Magic Johnson headed back to Michigan to carry Terry Furlow's casket at his funeral. The coroner who conducted the autopsy eventually said that 
the one thing he could say for certain is that Terry Furlow never hit the brakes when he was on his way into that utility pole. Terry Furlow was the first death linked to cocaine use in the NBA. But basketball writer Jackie McMullen remembers how rumors were swirling about the entire league. Everybody looked at the NBA as a bunch of uh, drug users, cocaine users. Why do I want to spend my money watching a bunch of guys on drugs run around? And uh, and obviously, there were some there were some serious serious drug issues that were in the NBA. But it was a sweeping brush that people took great obje- objection to. And if there's anything America loves to do, it's overreact with the largest, sweepingest brush it can find. There are about 250 players in the National Basketball Association. The average salary is $180,000 a season. And a report in today's Los Angeles Times claims that a shockingly high percentage of those athletes use cocaine. It was new money, though, for the NBA players. It was new money. It was guys that were coming from the projects and had no money at all, and all of a sudden had so much money they didn't know what to do with it, and a lot of it went right up their nose. That report claimed 40 to 75% of the entire NBA used cocaine. For some professional athletes, cocaine is a way to unwind after a game or to combat the tension and pressure of the jet-propelled, hotel-to-hotel life they lead. The NBA immediately disputed it, said the percentage wasn't true. But 75%, 40%, 1%, the number didn't really matter. White America didn't care that much about rich white people using drugs. But when it came to rich black people using drugs, well, that was unacceptable. And meanwhile, the incidents for the NBA kept piling up. Utah Jazz forward Bernard King arrested last January, the charge, possession of cocaine. Eddie Johnson, a guard for the Atlanta Hawks, arrested last month for drunk driving and possession of cocaine. Terry Furlow, Utah Jazz guard, killed in an auto accident. Even Studio 54, that A-list empire of cocaine and excess, wasn't immune. Stories of stars at the club turned from fun to dark. Me and about five of my teammates went out to Studio 54 about 3.30 in the morning. That's Skywalker David Thompson, one of the greatest dunkers in basketball history. I was involved in a confrontation with a guy, and he pushed me down a flight of stairs. Management at the club said David started a fight with an employee in a late-night rage. Thompson disputed that, said he was sucker-punched from behind. Kind of rolled down and tumbled down to the bottom of the stairs and just... Totally tore, tore all of my ligaments and my knee. Thompson filed a lawsuit against the owners of Studio 54. A busted knee for a dunker like the Skywalker was enough, eventually, to end it all. Not exactly how anyone wants the night at the party to end. The perception that the league has a drug problem is really affecting the popularity of the league and the sport. It's really kind of a dark time for the NBA because nobody affiliated with the league really knows how to handle this problem. So a year later, the league and the players' union came up with a very simple solution. The NBA has a new rule, as we said before, no second chances. If if a basketball player is caught with drugs, taking drugs, he's finished. Isn't that a little harsh, really? That isn't quite accurate. So let me explain briefly if I can. This is a... That was NBA Commissioner Larry O'Brien on Face the Nation. The new policy would offer rehab if a player came forward. But if they were caught... The judgment was very harsh. There's a credibility factor. Bob Lanier, who was president of the Players Association, said, I'm sick and tired 
of having the finger pointed at me and everybody in the NBA if there is a, a bad apple in the barrel. We insist that those bad apples be removed, and that's what we're doing. Two-time All-Star John Drew would be the first player handed a permanent suspension from the league. Drew told the New York Times after the ban the new policy, quote, will keep guys from coming forward and admitting they still have a problem. Furlow's old teammate, Fast Eddie Johnson, he was handed his own lifetime suspension in 1987. There were more suspensions. Chris Washburn, Roy Tarpley, Richard Dumas. Even with permanent pink slips staring them down, all-star caliber players couldn't stay away from the drugs. Because that's not how addiction works. You don't get scared straight. These suspensions were a band-aid, a chance to sidestep the bad headlines. Players dealing with drugs were no longer the team's or the league's problem. Now it was the player's problem to figure out. There's that old-time kind of attitude toward drugs, which is, if you take them, you must be evil. You, it's, it's not treated as a, a problem that requires treatment. It is, you are a bad person for taking them. Basketball and wealth in America had shifted away from the team effort to the star, the individual. Whatever you could get, you earned. And when it came to addiction, yep, you were on your own with that too. I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. The attitude could all be summed up in three simple words. And I answered, just say no. Former First Lady Nancy Reagan addressing the country on national television. She had visited the office of Needham, Harper & Steers in Manhattan to discuss how to get the word out to tackle drug abuse. And the Just Say No campaign was actually devised by advertising executives. And in June of 1982, President Reagan made it clear he was going to do what he did best, and that was get tough. As I've said before, we've taken down the surrender flag and run up the battle flag, and we're going to win the war on drugs. Fighting back would come down to personal responsibility, one-on-one, -on -one, just you versus the drugs. Basically how you'd solve a serious drug problem in an Ayn Rand novel, or in a Clint Eastwood movie. In fact, Clint Eastwood himself was roped in as part of the Just Say No campaign to make sure that you understood that if you succumbed to drugs, it was definitely your fault. If you go ahead and try them, at least it won't be out of ignorance. Just stupidity. What would I do if someone offered me these drugs? I'd tell them to take a hike. The first year of Just Say No featured a $25 million ad campaign funded by the Ad Council, the charity wing of the advertising industry, the company that brought you commercials like McGruff the Crime Dog and Smokey the Bear in PSA announcements. And Nancy Reagan was the star of the show. She traveled some 250,000 miles, made cameos at the World Series, Dynasty, different strokes to deliver the message. And Major League Baseball are pleased to welcome the leader of our nation's fight against drug and alcohol abuse. Through her efforts, the phrase, just say no. The personal shaming came with some stepped-up enforcement, too. Congress passed the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act, mandating zero tolerance for any drugs or alcohol found on public school grounds. Police would patrol schoolyards and classrooms to keep schools safe. And instead of funding for treatment centers, clinics, mental health services, the country chose Mr. T. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. As Michael McGrath put it for The Guardian, we got a program that placed the weight of an intractable billion-dollar underground industry squarely on the shoulders of the individual.
few years ago, a player by the name of Richard Dumas gave an interview with the Arizona Republic in which he reflected back on his NBA career in the early 90s. Anyone who followed basketball at the time knows Dumas. He was a dynamic young player. His career was derailed and derailed by his struggles with drugs. In the interview, he brought up Nancy Reagan. Coming up, he said, her campaign was one of the reasons he tried drugs in the first place. Quote, she said, just say no. So it got me interested It brought it to the forefront. Now they're showing this on TV. We didn't have any big drug problem until Nancy said to say no to drugs. I don't think anybody will miss the point. The thrill can kill. The you're-on-your-own approach to drugs would persist for decades. But pretty quickly, another response would emerge too. Soon enough, another drug death claimed the life of a can't-miss rookie, Len Bias. And Just Say No was about to become We're Coming For You. That's next episode on Death of the Wing. Death at the Wing is a Hyper Object and Three Uncanny Four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Raghu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. Nuna Sharafuddin is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacey Roberts-Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at HyperObject and Laura Mayer at 3 Uncanny 4. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments about the show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of the series talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is D-A-T-W at hyperobjectindustries.com. That's D-A-T-W for death at the wing at hyperobjectindustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther, or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Mikan. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing. <laughs>